This morning we'll be uh, uh, continuing our study on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6, um, reading verses 19 through 24. So if you guys want to go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles and turn there. Uh, again, that's Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be studying verses 19 uh, through 24. Uh, and as you guys are turning there, um, I'll open us up with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray as uh, we look towards you and towards your uh, word that you would illuminate our hearts with light, uh, that you would convince us of your truth, that you would open up our uh, eyes and our ears uh, to see you more clearly. Um, uh, God, I pray that your word would come alive, uh, that you would uh, teach us um, uh, simply to know you better and to value you more. And... um, God, convince us of the value of your kingdom. Uh, We need your spirit for that. Uh, We need your help. We're dependent upon you. Um, And so we turn to you now uh, and ask for your help. Uh, We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God is better. He's better than wealth. He's better than health. He's better than purpose. God's kingdom is better. It's better than anything you're saving for, working for, or dreaming for. God is better than life itself. But do you really believe it? In this passage, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is more important than anything else. Furthermore, you can take hold of its greatness by choosing correctly in three different choices. And by living with those choices. And we'll be looking at what those choices are this morning. The first choice we have to make in order to fully realize the greatness of the kingdom is what will we value? Will we hoard materialistic wealth or will we hoard spiritual Christ-centered wealth? Will we hoard uh, materialistic wealth or will we hoard spiritual Christ-centered wealth? We see this choice in verses 19 and 20, which we'll read one more time. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus begins by saying, Do not lay up for yourselves on earth uh, treasures. And the grammar here could also be a command. Stop storing up treasures on earth. Jesus makes the assumption that those who have gathered for his sermon on the mount have their priorities out of place. And so he's telling them to stop it. He's telling them 
to make a choice, make a decisive break from putting stock in, spirit, in earthly things. And Jesus tells them why. Materialistic wealth doesn't last. It can't be relied upon. Uh, Jesus points out that earthly treasures are susceptible to moths and rust. They can be eaten. And Sherry and I inherited some fabric uh, patio furniture uh, a few years ago. And this past winter, I stored it away in uh, the shed behind our house. And then this spring, when the warm weather came and it was time to start sitting out and enjoying the sun, I went back to the shed to retrieve the patio furniture. And when I walked in there, the first thing that I noticed is that something had nibbled on the material of our chairs. And I didn't pay any mind at first, so I picked up the chairs to carry them out, and that's when this big furry ball fell out of the middle of it. And these mice went scurrying everywhere. And so I did what any man would do. I ran out of that shed as quickly as I could. (laughs) And then I went to Amazon and bought a bunch of mouse traps. You'll be happy to know that our shed is now mouse-free, but not before they ate up my chairs. I had to haul them down to Stuckman's and get rid of them. They were a complete loss. The point is material things don't last. They can't be relied upon. They get eaten. And they wear out. First century clothing styles didn't change very often, so whatever outfit you had, you wore it again and again, day after day, for as long as you could. Children's clothes would have been handed down many, many times, but eventually they wore out. There's only so many times you can patch a garment before it's a total loss, and you just have to throw it away. They can also be stolen. Jesus says, thieves break in and steal. The word here that's translated break in carries the idea of digging through something. Houses in Galilee uh, during this time period usually had flat roofs made of uh, reeds with a layer of clay over the top of it. And so you could dig through them to get inside. There's a famous story in Luke 5 where Jesus, uh, he heals a paralyzed man. And the paralytic couldn't get to Jesus uh, to be healed because of the crowds where he was teaching. And so a few of his friends helped them onto the roof uh, of the house. And they dug through the roof. And then they lowered the man down to Jesus and he was healed. Thieves could have used the exact same technique to score some first century loot. Jesus warns us about moths and thieves to remind us that materialistic wealth is temporary. You can't rely on it. Your nice clothes will wear out. Your property will get damaged. Your stuff might get stolen. Your house might burn down or get flooded. The market might crash and your retirement funds devalued. There's no real security in it. And even if you do manage to keep it all, you can't bring it with you into eternal life. There was a popular bumper sticker in the 80s that read, He who dies with the most toys wins. Wins? What kind of competition is that? First of all, what do you get if you win? What are they going to do? Throw a trophy into your casket with you? Second, even if you do win, you won't even know it. You'll be dead. In high school, I owned a No Fear t-shirt, and only 90s kids will understand No Fear t-shirts. They were a clothing brand that was targeted to extreme sports, and the word No Fear was emblazoned in the front with this vicious, hostile-looking font. And they always had these quotes on the back, you know, existential quotes. Um, And I owned a No Fear t-shirt in 
uh, high school that had a correct version of that bumper sticker. It said this, He who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) It isn't that the truth. Storing up earthly treasure is a futile striving. Jesus warns us against hoarding materialistic wealth, not because materialistic wealth in and of itself is evil. The Bible speaks on numerous occasions of our righteous duty to provide financially for our sustenance, family, and future. It's a good thing. But Jesus warns us against the selfish pursuit of wealth. Notice back in verse 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's the selfish, miserly hoarding of wealth at the expense of others that misleads us spiritually. And it was a, it was a pitfall for first century Jew, uh, Jewish audience to whom Jesus was speaking. They often equated wealth with being blessed by God. That's certainly the way that it seemed to work with the other heroes of the faith. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, among others. They were all heroes of the faith. They were all said to have been blessed by God, and they lived very comfortable lives. And so the mindset of some of those in Jesus' audience would be, the rich deserve their wealth because God approves of them. And the poor also deserve their poverty because God is punishing them or because they're somehow outside of God's blessing. It would have been easy for them to mistakenly look at their possessions and feel that God approved of their lifestyle. And so I wonder what earthly things we might rely upon to gain a false sense of security that God endorses our lifestyle. The selfish pursuit of materialistic gain, it misleads us. It sets a barrier between us and completing our sole mission and purpose as Christians, which is to live a selfless disciple making way of life wherever we go. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so what earthly things might we pursue that would cause us to stray from pure historic Christianity? In verse 19, Jesus tells us what not to do. And in verse 20, he tells us what to do. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He gives us a choice. Will you hoard materialistic wealth or will you hoard spiritual Christ-centered wealth? Treasures in heaven refers to those righteous and sacrificial acts of faith that come with a promise of eternal reward. D.A. Carson defines heavenly treasure as whatever is of good and eternal significance that comes out of what is done on earth. Doing righteous deeds, suffering for Christ's sake, forgiving one another, all of these have promise of reward. The Bible is filled with these types of promises. The Beatitudes, for example, that we studied a few weeks ago. They promise the kingdom of heaven to those who are poor in spirit, comfort for those who mourn, inheritance for those who live a humble life, satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy for those who show mercy, those who are pure in heart get to see God, those who make peace get a new name, the Son of God, and for those who follow so closely in the footsteps of Jesus so as to become the recipients of persecution and the object of evil insults and false accusations, get a reward in heaven so great the Bible doesn't even name it. 
These are the types of treasure Jesus calls us to hoard. Everything else is just a waste. These things we can never lose. And they can only be gained through faithful acts of sacrificial obedience to God. So have a going out of business sale on the rest of your life. Sell out your soul to God and his kingdom purposes. Store up treasure in heaven and forget about everything else. Jesus said, stop laying up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. He makes the assumption that his audience's priorities are misplaced. And is it okay for me to make the same assumption that most of us walked in here with our priorities out of place? I know I did. I heard just this morning that uh, an elderly man that I uh, met with once and talked with on the phone uh, once, um, who just had some deep spiritual questions. And every time I sat and talked with him, this question kept coming up into my mind. Is this, is this guy saved? Is he heading towards eternal life? And I kept on being prompted to ask him a question. And the question was, what do you believe about Jesus? And I never got to that point. I never felt like it was the right place in the conversation. And when I called him on the phone, he had so much trouble understanding what I was saying. I was like, well, I just need to set up an appointment and talk with him face-to-face and, and ask him. And it was such a burning question that I had to ask him, and I never did. And I found out this morning that he died. My priorities are out of whack. Don't be like me. The Spirit's prompting you to, to do something. Act right away. Everything else is a waste. God's kingdom is so great, we can value it more than anything we have. So choose the best and live by it. The second choice we have to make in order to fully realize the greatness of God's kingdom is what will we focus on? Will we be idolaters or worshipers? Will we be idolaters or worshipers? We see this choice in verses 21 through 23. Which says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus continues by making a general statement. He said, Where your treasure is, so also your heart. It's a pretty profound statement. It can't really stand on its own. and needs explaining in order to be fully understood. In fact, it might work pretty well on the back of a No Fear t-shirt. Wherever your treasure is, so also your heart. And so Jesus follows this up with an analogy to explain what he's talking about. We see that in verses 22 and 23. And he basically said, whatever you look at will either lighten or darken your life. If you choose to look at good things, then your entire life will be illuminated with goodness. But if you choose to look at bad things, then your life will be plunged into moral darkness. So what we focus on is very important. This analogy reminds me of all those adventure movies that take place in Egyptian tombs. They always depict this really fanciful lighting system. Uh, Maybe you guys have seen it. It's like at the very mouth of the tomb, they have one mirror. And if you orient it just correctly, then it will receive light from the sun and then reflect it into the tomb. And then inside the tomb, there's all this network of mirrors that are all angled just right so that it receives the light and passes it 
reflects it onto the other mirrors and it lights up the entire tomb, right? Maybe you guys have seen this. And I'm pretty sure there's no archaeological evidence that this was really used in Egypt. But it was on Mythbusters. And Adam and Jamie, they tested it and they found out that it really was possible to light a room this way. Um, But they had a lot of trouble getting the first mirror focused correctly. And if it was off focus even slightly, then the whole tomb would be darkened. So if we're focused on good things, then our whole life is illuminated like a tomb. But if our focus is off the good, even slightly, then our whole life like a tomb is plunged into darkness. This is the analogy that Jesus is making. And so when Jesus refers to the heart and the eyes, he's talking about the human soul or the center of our thoughts, attitudes, emotions, and will. In other words, whatever our souls value the most and whatever our souls focus on most will determine the entire direction and outcome of our lives. And this is because we become what we worship. This is a very well-developed theme throughout the Bible. This goes back all the way to the creation of the first two people in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.26 is where God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were created to be image bearers. That's at the very center of what it means to be a human being. It doesn't say that about any of the other animals that God made. The Bible says that the animals were made according to their kinds, according to their likeness. That's why all dogs act like dogs. They're loyal and eager to please. That's why all cats act like cats. They're grumpy and spiteful. (laughs) But we were created in the likeness of God. In other words, we were created to act like God. At least we were supposed to. A good way to understand what it means for us to be image bearers is to think of our souls as mirrors. We reflect whatever we're focusing our lives on. And this was great for Adam and Eve. They had an innocent human nature. The focus of their lives was always on God and always on good. And so they reflected godliness. But all that changed in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve chose to sin by eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And suddenly a whole new world was opened up to them. Evil. Before they only knew good. They only focused on God and so they only reflected God. But now they knew evil. They could now choose to turn from God and focus on something else and become like something else to their own detriment. And the same is true today. We become what we worship. If we choose to focus our hearts on God and worship God, then godliness will naturally flow from our lives. But if we choose to focus our lives on something else, anything else, the godliness in us becomes corrupted. We become more like that thing and less like God. And there's a name in the Bible for the sin of focusing on something besides God. It's called idolatry. The nations, including Israel, turned from the one true God who they couldn't see, and they made counterfeit gods that they could see. They made idols out of wood and stone and precious metals and said, These are our gods now. We worship them. We idolize them. We sacrifice our lives to them. We sacrifice our kids to them. 
They became spiritually lifeless. They became just like them. And just like lifeless statues, they lost the ability to speak and see and hear and breathe in a spiritual sense. I want you guys to listen to the effects of idolatry in Psalms 135, 15 through 18. It says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. We become what we worship. In Exodus, even as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai, the Israelites fell into idolatry. They made an idol of gold in the shape of a calf and they worshipped it. The statue, because it was lifeless, it couldn't move its neck. And Israel became like that statue spiritually. And from then on, the Bible refers to Israel again and again and again as a stiff-necked people. Because they are spiritually incapable of turning their heads back toward God, repenting and receiving the forgiveness they so needed. They became what they worshipped. And ultimately, idolatry devastates our lives to the point that only a powerful work of God's grace can revive us and turn us back to the worship of the true God and make us anew in his image. And so these are the concepts that are behind verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So what does your heart value most? What has captured your heart? Is it King Jesus? Is it King Jesus' kingdom agenda? Are you a worshiper? Or do you value something else more than God and become wrapped up in idolatry? Jesus said, verse 22, If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The word translated healthy is the very basic word for good. A good eye. It also carries the idea of being uh, focused on just one thing. So does Jesus and his kingdom agenda have your life's undivided focus? Are you a worshiper? If so, then your life is completely illuminated with goodness. Because we become what we worship. Jesus said, verse 23, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The bad eye, or literally the evil eye, was a source of paranoia in the ancient Near East. The evil eye was almost like this demonic force. The evil eye darted from one thing to the next with covetousness and greed, desiring to snatch up anything it could by any means. People were terrified of the evil eye looking at their stuff. So if your eye is bad, darting around, focusing on things besides God, then your life will be plunged into moral darkness. Because we become what we worship. And the second half of 23 is very concerning. It says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This tells us that we can be so spiritually deceived by idolatry that we can be plunged into moral darkness and not even know it. And my prayer today is may God give us all the grace never, ever to get to that point. What our souls value and focus on will determine the entire outcome and direction of our lives. 
Jesus offers up our second decision this morning. Will you choose to be a worshiper of the one true God, or will you choose idolatry? Is there margin in your life for focusing solely on God? Is this something that happens daily, or at this time is devoted to me connecting with God, focusing my life with Him, and getting my affairs into order with Him, getting my priorities straight? And not just at the beginning of the day, but multiple times throughout the day to reconnect with God and get the priorities back on track. Is there margin in your life for that? God is better than anything we could possibly focus on. So choose the best and live by it. The third choice we have to make in order to fully realize the greatness of the kingdom is who will own us. Will we make King Jesus our master, or, we, or will we make anything else our master? Will we make Jesus our master, or will we make anything else our master? We see this uh, choice in verse 24, where Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In this final verse, Jesus said there's two things true about human nature and the design of the human heart. It must be owned and ruled by a master, and it can be ruled by only one. And I know it might not be fun for some of you guys to think about this, but at every given time, we are mastered by something in our lives. The word used here for master is actually slave owner. We are always a slave of someone or something. We are not even fractionally as dependent as we'd like to think we are. This is true in a special way for Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Romans 9 pictures us as a lump of clay in the hands of God. We belong to him, and he gets to mold us into whatever he wants. It's his choice, not ours. If Jesus isn't your master, then something else is. In the second half of verse 24, Jesus personifies money, and he sets it up as a rival master to King Jesus. He said, you can serve God and money. The human heart is incapable of dividing its allegiance. It can't pick to serve this master a little bit, And another one a little bit too. It's one master or the other, not both. When I was in college, our cafeteria always served two entrees with the evening meal. Uh, But the rule was you could only pick one of the entrees. And and there was this wonderful southern lunch lady who worked there uh, who was always reminding us of the rule. She says, one or the other, not both. And so I knew this rule. I was well acquainted with it. But one day I came in for dinner. And the entrees that night was corn dogs and chicken sandwiches. I was like, how am I supposed to choose between these two delicious things? It was impossible. And so I caved in. I took one of each. And I almost made it, too. I was like three steps away from getting out of the kitchen, and I had my tray full of potato wedges and chocolate milk and corn dogs and chicken sandwiches. 
And that's when I heard it. Heard it. Nah, nah, nah. You know the rule. One or the other, not both. And so I was forced to choose. My stomach had to pledge allegiance to just one of them. And so I left with a chicken sandwich. There's a story about a young man in Matthew 19 who has to pledge allegiance to one master or the other. He's faced with the choice of making either Jesus or money his master. He approached Jesus and asked, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus listed off a few of the Ten Commandments, but the man felt as as though he had kept them all. And so he asked again, what do I still lack? This is where Jesus answers and says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give uh, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. It says the young man walked away sorrowful because he owned a lot of stuff. He made his choice. He was mastered by money. Giving up his possessions would have been one thing, but that second part, the come follow me part, that's the part that would have given him eternal life. And he couldn't do it. His true master had whipped him into shape real good. Jesus went on to comment how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven because they're mastered by their money. And this shocked the disciples. Remember, they're still thinking that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. If those who are blessed by the Lord can't get into heaven, who can? Who then can be saved, they asked. Ah, Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He's talking about grace right here. In this broken world, it's so difficult to choose the right master. We're constantly being pursued by rulers that aren't godly. But, by, but God, by his powerful, boundless grace, can turn even the hardest hearts towards God. And he can break the chains of even the cruelest master. And so back to verse 24, Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. Jesus probably used money as an example because that's what a lot of people in the audience were struggling with. But I think people are mastered by a whole lot more things than just money. And I think that this truth that Jesus brings up applies to those things as well. And even though materialism has a stranglehold on our society, I think most of us here have discovered that the best things in life cannot be bought with money. And those things can best be summed up by three words. You guys have probably seen them. Live, laugh, love. Enjoy life, in other words. Take time to smell the roses. Don't take yourself so seriously. Spend time with the people who care about you. And I think that this has become a life philosophy for Christians and unchristians alike. And their good values But I think that even these things can be a rival master to King Jesus, especially when we hear verses like that in Matthew 11, 12, that says, His kingdom suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And I think one of the biggest rival masters to King Jesus is busyness. We're mastered by our schedules. And I realize that I am stomping on just about every single person's toes when I say this. 
But I think it deserves to be said and needs to be said and addressed. Busyness has become a vice for us. Our schedules are so filled with productivity and doing all we can to help our kids achieve their dreams that there's no margin left for anything else. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or your schedule, or anything else. One or the other, not both. Jesus offers up our third decision. Will you choose to make Jesus your master, or will you make anything else your master? Jesus is the best master we could ever have. He's the one who says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's also the one who says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Those are high demands. Those are very high costs. But when it comes to the cost of following Jesus and receiving reward in the kingdom, you always give back much, much more than you ever paid. Choose the best and live by it. Steven Spielberg made a movie in 1993 about the Nazi Holocaust called Schindler's List. It's a historical uh, movie. It's about a a real man named Oskar Schindler, a German businessman who discovers he can save Jews from dying in Nazi death camps by hiring them to work in his factories. And at first, Schindler was in it only for the profits. But when he saw the mistreatment of the Jews by his own party people, he was part of the Nazi party, His goal quickly changed to saving as many Jews as possible. And this proved to be a very expensive mission for him. With the final solution in full swing, Schindler had to bribe the Shistafel to look the other way as he hired Jewish workers and as he built uh, facilities to house them in. He spent his entire fortune on this. And near the end, he has to flee from the invading Russian army who have captured him, uh, who, who would capture him as a, party, as a Nazi party member and as a war profiteer. So he has to run away. And there's a famous scene where the Jews he rescued present him with a ring um, as they part ways at a train station. And the ring had an inscription that read, whoever saves a person saves the world entire. And that's when Schindler begins realizing he could have done more. He starts taking stock of the value of his possessions in terms of human lives. He turns to his car that was beside him. He says, why did I keep this car? That's ten people right there. Then he clutches his Nazi party pin. He said, this pin, it's gold. He says, it would have given me two more people, at least one more. At least one person is dead for this. And that's when he starts breaking down. I could have saved one more person. And I didn't. He had saved 1,100 people, saving for the future generation after generation who had him to thank. But in that moment, he was focused on the 11 that he could have saved. And the lost future generations they represented all bound up in a button and a car. Oscar Schindler's story points us to the true value of earthly possessions. They have their use, 
But ultimately, they're of little value. And they can, however, block us from focusing on what's really important, namely King Jesus and his eternal kingdom. I've read in several places that people's biggest regret when they near death is how much they worked. They regret being so busy at their jobs and not spending time with the people they love. And that may very well be the regret that we have when we near the end. But I think our biggest regret will come later. I think our biggest regret will come after we die. When we catch our first glimpse of the glory of heaven, I think our biggest regret will be that we didn't spend more building the kingdom of God. I think we'll think, how much time and energy and stress I wasted on that world, on stuff I will never see again. I wish I knew then what I knew now. I would do it all differently. And I'm telling you right now, we do know. Everything we need to know about the priorities of God and his kingdom are right here in this book. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's given us everything we need to know for life and godliness. If we set our hearts and lives on the words in this book by faith, we will have no regrets. In Matthew 13, through 46, we have two parables where two people get a peek at the kingdom of God in all its wonder. In one parable, the kingdom is represented by a hidden treasure buried in a field. And the other parable is represented by a priceless pearl. Both of the people who stumble upon their treasure, upon seeing it, instantly recognize the exceeding value of what they found. Instantly realize that it's worth selling out everything, everything that they have and worked for in order to buy it. In the same way for us, if we were able to catch just a glimpse of the kingdom of God, Jesus' worldwide church in all its glory, we too would instantly sell everything, everything, everything. We're currently striving and spending and saving for in order to wrap up our lives completely in it and invest every last bit of time and energy in it because it's worth it. But we can't see it all. We have to accept its worth by faith that it tells us in his word. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so the starting place in valuing the kingdom of God for all that it's worth is by choosing correctly from these three choices. Choose to hoard spiritual Christ-centered treasure by doing righteous, sacrificial acts of faith. Choose to be a worshiper of God, not an idolater of stuff. And make King Jesus your master. You can only have one, so choose the best. And we need to live by these choices. 
Because anyone can look at these choices and pick out what the right one is. We could have the children from Children's Church come in and say, hey, look at these choices. Which ones do you pick? They could pick it right away. Guys, it is easy to know what's right. But we have to do it. And that's the hard part. We have to live by these choices, faithfully, obediently, loving, following our master, King Jesus. God is best. He's better than wealth. He's better than health. He's better than purpose. And God's kingdom is best. It's better than anything you're saving for or working for or dreaming for. God is better than life itself. But do we believe it? Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you walk in them. Heavenly Father, I pray that these things that we know, these right answers that we know, will sink deeply into our heart. That we will value you higher and higher than anything else. That our life's priorities will be your priorities, your kingdom agenda, to live a disciple-making way of life in your kingdom, in your church. God, we need your spirit for that. And I prayed before and I pray now, even as we walk out, God, that your spirit will make these truths planted deeply in our soul. And that fruit will come as we continually get into your word and know you more and more. All these things in your name. Amen.